Chapter Two of Christmas at Thompson Hall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Brown's Failure. With her eye still fixed upon her burden, she glanced up at the number of the door, three, three, three. She had been determined all through not to forget that. Then she turned the latch and crept in. The chamber also was dark after the gaslight on the stairs, but that was so much the better. She herself had put out the two candles on the dressing table before she had left her husband. As she was closing the door behind her, she paused and could hear that he was sleeping. She was well aware that she had been long absent, quite long enough for a man to fall into slumber who was given that way. She must have been gone, she thought, fully an hour. There had been no end to that turning over of napkins which she had so well known to be altogether vain. She paused at the center table of the room, still looking at the mustard which she now delicately dried from off her hand. She had had no idea that it would have been so difficult to carry so light and so small an affair, but there it was, and nothing had been lost. She took some small instrument from the washing-stand, and with the handle collected the flowing fragments into the center. Then the question occurred to her whether, as her husband was sleeping so sweetly, it would be well to disturb him. She listened again, and felt that the slight murmur of a snore with which her ears were regaled was altogether free from any real malady in the throat. Then it occurred to her that, after all, fatigue perhaps had only made him cross. She bethought herself how, during the whole journey, she had failed to believe in his illness. What meals he had eaten! How thoroughly he had been able to enjoy his full complement of cigars! And then that glass of brandy, against which she had raised her voice slightly in feminine opposition and now he was sleeping there like an infant, with full round perfected almost sonorous workings of the throat. Who does not know that sound, almost of two rusty bits of iron scratching against each other, which comes from a suffering windpipe? There is no semblance of that here. Why disturb him when he was so thoroughly enjoying that rest which, more certainly than anything else, would fit him for the fatigue of the morrow's journey. I think that, after all her labor, she would have left the pungent cataplasm on the table and have crept gently into bed beside him, had not a thought suddenly struck her of the great injury he had been doing her if he were not really ill. To send her down there, in a strange hotel, wandering among the passages in the middle of the night, subject to the contumely of any one who might meet her, on a commission which, if it were not sanctified by absolute necessity, would be so thoroughly objectionable. At this moment she hardly did believe that he had ever really been ill. Let him have the cataplasm, if not as a remedy, then as a punishment. It could at any rate do him no harm." It was with an idea of avenging rather than of justifying the past labors of the night that she proceeded at once to quick action. 
leaving the candle on the table so that she might steady her right hand with the left, she hurried stealthily to the bedside. Even though he was behaving badly to her, she would not cause him discomfort by waking him roughly. She would do a wife's duty to him, as a British matron should. She would not only put the warm mixture on his neck, but would sit carefully by him for twenty minutes, so that she might relieve him from it when the proper period should have come for removing the counter-irritation from his throat. There would doubtless be some little difficulty in this, in collecting the mustard after it had served her purpose. Had she been at home, surrounded by her own comforts, the application would have been made with some delicate linen bag through which the pungency of the spice would have penetrated with strength sufficient for the purpose. But the circumstance of the occasion had not admitted this. She had, she felt, done wonders in achieving so much success as this which she had obtained. If there should be anything disagreeable in the operation, he must submit to it. He had asked for mustard for his throat, and mustard he should have. As these thoughts passed quickly through her mind, leaning over him in the dark with her eye fixed on the mixture lest it should slip, she gently raised his flowing beard with her left hand, and with her other inverted, rapidly, steadily, but very softly fixed the handkerchief on his throat. From the bottom of his chin to the spot at which the collar-bones meeting together form the orifice of the chest, it covered the whole noble expanse. There was barely time for a glance, but never had she been more conscious of the grand proportions of that manly throat. A sweet feeling of pity came upon her, causing her to determine to relieve his sufferings in the shorter space of fifteen minutes. He had been lying on his back with his lips apart, and as she held back his beard, that and her hand nearly covered the features of his face. But he made no violent effort to free himself from the encounter. He did not even move an arm or a leg. He simply emitted a snore louder than any that had come before. She was aware that it was not his wont to be so loud, that there was generally something more delicate and perhaps more querulous in his nocturnal voice, but then the present circumstances were exceptional. She dropped the beard very softly, and there on the pillow before her lay the face of a stranger. She had put the mustard plaster on the wrong man. Not Priam wakened in the dead of night, not Dido when first she learned that Aeneas had fled, not Othello when he learned that Desdemona had been chased, not Medea, when she became conscious of her slaughtered children, could have been more struck with horror than was this British matron as she stood for a moment, gazing with awe on that stranger's bed. One vain, half-completed, snatching grasp she made at the handkerchief, then drew back her hand. If she were to touch him, would he not wake at once and find her standing there in his bedroom? And then how could she explain it? By what words could she so quickly make him know the circumstances of that strange occurrence that he should accept it all before he had said a word that might offend her? 
For a moment she stood all but paralyzed after that faint, ineffectual movement of her arm. Then he stirred his head uneasily on the pillow, opened wider his lips, and twice, in rapid succession, snored louder than before. She started back a couple of paces, and with her body placed between him and the candle, with her face averted, but with her hand still resting on the foot of the bed, she endeavored to think what duty required of her. She had injured the man. Though she had done it most unwillingly, there could be no doubt but that she had injured him. If for a moment she could be brave, the injury might in truth be little. But how disastrous might be the consequences if she were now in her cowardice to leave him? Who could tell? Applied for fifteen or twenty minutes, a mustard plaster may be the salvation of a throat ill at ease. But if left there throughout the night, upon the neck of a strong man, ailing nothing, only too prone in his strength to slumber soundly, how sad, how painful, for aught she knew how dangerous, might be the effects. And surely it was an error which any man with a heart in his bosom might pardon. Judging from what little she had seen of him, she thought that he must have a heart in his bosom. Was it not her duty to wake him, and then quietly to extricate him from the embarrassment which she had brought upon him? But in doing this, what words should she use? How should she wake him? How could she make him understand her goodness, her beneficence, her sense of duty, before he should have jumped from the bed and rushed to the bell, and have summoned all above and all below to the rescue? Sir! Sir, do not move, do not stir, do not scream. I have put a mustard plaster on your throat, thinking that you were my husband. As yet no harm has been done. Let me take it off, and then hold your peace forever. Where is the man of such native constancy and grace of spirit that, at the first moment of waking with a shock, he could hear these words from the mouth of an unknown woman by his bedside, and at once obey them to the letter. Would he not surely jump from his bed, with that horrid compound falling about him, from which there could be no complete relief unless he would keep his present attitude without emotion? The picture which presented itself to her mind as to his probable conduct was so terrible that she found herself unable to incur the risk. Then an idea presented itself to her mind. We all know how, in a moment, quick thoughts will course through the subtle brain. She would find that porter and send him to explain it all. There should be no concealment now. She would tell the story and would bid him to find the necessary aid. Alas, as she told herself that she would do so, she knew well that she was only running from the danger which it was her duty to encounter. Once again she put out her hand as though to return along the bed. Then thrice he snorted louder than before, and moved up his knee uneasily beneath the clothes, as though the sharpness of the mustard were already working upon his skin. She watched him for a moment longer, and then, with the candle in her hand, she fled. Poor human nature! Had he been an old man, even a middle-aged man, she would not have left him to his unmerited sufferings. 
as it was though she completely recognized her duty and knew what justice and goodness demanded of her she could not do it but there was still left to her that plan of sending the night porter to him it was not till she was out of the room and had gently closed the door behind her that she began to bethink herself how she had made the mistake with a glance of her eye she looked up and then saw the number on the door three five three remarking to herself with a Briton's natural criticism on things french that those horrid foreigners do not know how to make their figures she scudded rather than ran along the corridor and then down some stairs and along another passage so that she might not be found in the neighborhood should the poor man in his agony rush rapidly from his bed in the confusion of her first escape she hardly ventured to look for her own passage nor did she in the least know how she had lost her way when she came upstairs with a mustard in her hand but at the present moment her chief object was the night porter she went on descending till she came again to that vestibule and looking up at the clock saw that it was now past one it was not yet midnight when she left her husband but she was not at all astonished at the lapse of time it seemed to her as though she had passed a night among these miseries and oh what a night but there was yet much to be done she must find that porter and then return to her own suffering husband ah what should she now say to him if he should really be ill how should she assuage him and yet how more than ever necessary was it that they should leave that hotel early in the morning that they should leave paris by the very earliest and quickest train that would take them as fugitives from their present dangers the door of the salon was open but she had no courage to go in search of a second supply she would have lacked strength to carry it up the stairs where now oh where was that man from the vestibule she made her way into the hall but everything seemed to be deserted through the glass she could see a light in the court beyond but she could not bring herself to endeavor even to open the hall doors and now she was very cold chilled to her very bones all this had been done at christmas and during such severity of weather as had never before been experienced by living parisians a feeling of great pity for herself gradually came upon her what wrong had she done that she should be so grievously punished why should she be driven to wander about in this way till her limbs were failing her and then so absolutely important as it was that her strength should support her in the morning the man would not die even though he were left there without aid to rid himself of the cataplasm as best he might was it absolutely necessary that she should disgrace herself but she could not even procure the means of disgracing herself if that telling her story to the night porter would have been a disgrace she did not find him and at last resolved to make her way back to her own room without further quest she began to think that she had done all that she could do no man was ever killed by a mustard plaster on his throat his discomfort at the worst would not be worse than hers had been or too probably than that of her poor husband's 
So she went back up the stairs and along the passages and made her way on this occasion to the door of her room without any difficulty. The way was so well known to her that she could not but wonder that she had failed before. But now her hands had been empty and her eyes had been at her full command. She looked up and there was the number very manifest on this occasion, 333. She opened the door most gently, thinking that her husband might be sleeping as soundly as that other man had slept, and she crept into the room. End of chapter 2 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina